hope in the midst of a shaken world. Who would have ever predicted a decade ago, 20 years ago, that so many things that we take for granted would just be almost like they were just thrown up into the air to come down helter-skelter. All different areas of life. A lack of certainty. Not really knowing what tomorrow will bring. I love the image of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. And I, of all people, need the image of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. Why? Because at times, I've tended to have pride in my own abilities and my own strength. You know what I mean. It's the I can do it attitude. Not afraid, even when I should be. And so at times, I I tend to think of myself as impenetrable, an island that needs no one, nothing, no thing. But Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 brings me back to reality. Here's the passage and here's the image. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. John's desire for you and for me and everyone else who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ the Messiah is to have assurance. Assurance that we have eternal life. So He doesn't just give us one strand to think about. No. It's a a threefold cord that's not quickly broken. And so He not only gives us three tests so that we can know We can be certain, the moral test, the doctrinal test, the social test, but he revisits them three times in this short letter of only five chapters. And so using the image of Ecclesiastes 4, I see the focus of these three tests coming together like a threefold cord that's not quickly broken, not easily broken. And if we're struggling a bit in one area, there are two more areas providing strength and support. And the three strands that run through all five chapters of 1 John in strength give us the grounds, the foundation for assurance that we have eternal life. And those three are true obedience, which John says plainly is keeping the commandments. True belief especially as it relates to exactly who Jesus is, God coming in the flesh. Right here in Brooke, I had this discussion week before last with a young lady who said, 
Oh, I believe Jesus is very important. But, but I just, I don't think Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God are one person. I don't see Jesus as God coming in the flesh. John says that's an important part of true belief. That we can confess that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And then true love. Loving God and loving one another. And doing our love in a sacrificial, self-giving way. This morning, we come to the third urging regarding mutual love. Why should we love? Well, in chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, John told us that it is part of the commandment that's both old and new. It's a commandment that Jesus gave, so we had it from the beginning. It's old in that sense. It was even in the Old Testament. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He started out with the great Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And all those Pharisees and all were saying, oh yeah, you got it right, Jesus. And then He said, and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's a, it's a new commandment, but it's also it's new in that way. And it's new in the sense that it's new in that, in that Jesus provided the example by dying on the cross. Sacrificial love. And I'm not, when I say this, I'm not saying that it's love for them, the unworthy. I'm saying it's love for me as one who is unworthy. Every morning, every morning, when I get up and I look in the mirror for the first time, I look at somebody who does not deserve what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. I don't have to point any fingers. Secondly, John went on to say, we, we have to be urged loving people because mutual self-sacrificial love, love for one another, is in fact evidence that John's readers, and therefore we, are in the light and possess eternal life. This is the third treatment we have before us this morning also, but in that second treatment, remember what he said? If you are able to say you hate someone then the love of God isn't in you. And you don't even know God. Isn't that something? You don't even know God if you're able to hate. So this morning we come to chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. And we're actually faced with a hypothesis that needs to be understood and we need to internalize it. And here's the hypothesis. If, that's a big word, isn't it? Just two letters, but very big. If we truly demonstrate that we do, in fact, have love for one another, then God is revealed in our fellowship. 
That's a big one. So let's get to the text. Our sermon this morning is titled, Loving One Another Revisited. Chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. Wow. Did you notice how the text began? The repeated refrain of the paragraph is the reflexive love one another. It occurs three times. First is an exhortation in verse 7, let us love one another. Then as a statement of duty in verse 11, we ought to love one another. And then in verse 12 is a hypothesis. If we love one another. And and not only is this the third time in the letter that he's dealing with the importance of loving one another, that he's given us this, what he called the social test, or, well, I'm sorry, what I called the social test from John Stott. Uh, But three times in our text today, John has repeated the refrain. Doesn't it seem that John is at pains to demonstrate the importance of this concept, this imperative to love one another? Why do you think reciprocal love is so important? I mean, can we come to understand it as one of the plain duties of being a Christian? I mean, in our text today, John emphasized that God is love in Himself, in verse 8. He'll do it again in verse 16 when we get there. He emphasized that God has loved us in Christ, back in in verses 10 and 11. And that God continues to love in and through us. These are the foundational beliefs upon which John develops his reasons now for the importance of us loving one another. First, the exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another, he says, for love is from God. I love poetry. How many of you love poetry? Anybody else love poetry? I love poetry. I was listening week before last to a podcast where two guys were just sharing some of their favorite poems. Some of them just two-liners. But they make you think. They make you think. And in the Greek language, this is a poem. I mean, John begins this chapter with using the same word, two forms of the same word back to back. Agape toy, agapomen. 
Alleluia. Beloved. Those who are loved. Love one another. And John states the reason why we should love one another. It's because the origin of love is the very being of God. God is love in and of Himself. Verse 7, verse 8. On we'll see it in verse 16. But what does it mean to say God is love? I mean, we need to know because John's first argument for brotherly love is based on God's eternal nature. He states it twice. First, for love comes from God in verse 7. Secondly, because God is love in verse 8. By the way, there are at least three other statements in the New Testament concerning what God is in terms of substance and nature. In his conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4, when Jesus is sitting there by the well, he says to her, God is spirit. We've already been told here in 1 John, God is light. And one that's included in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 in the Old Testament. Now John's opponents, especially if they were falling into the Gnostic teaching, they would have believed that God is an immaterial spirit. God is spirit. And, and they would have also accepted that God is light. But nowhere in their teaching is it found that God is love. And yet it's the most comprehensive and the most sublime affirmations about God's being. And repeated twice right here in eight verses, 8 and 16. But nevertheless, it's important for you and I to hold the biblical assertions about God together. And that's not easy for a lot of people to do. God is love does not mean that God is only, that loving, I mean, is only one of God's many activities. That's not what it means. But rather it means that all of God's activity is loving activity. And therefore, even as God judges, God as the consuming fire, that has to be understood within the concept of love. That God is judging out of love. And if judging is in love, His loving is also in justice. He who is love is light and fire as well. And you see, far from condoning sin, His love has found a way to expose it because He's light and to consume it because He is fire without destroying the sinner but saving him because God is love. Timothy Keller has written a book called The Meaning of Marriage Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. Let me read to you a paragraph from his book. Love without truth is sentimentality. 
It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. The conviction and repentance move us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and His grace. Now, from the truth that God is love, John draws another deduction, but it's not positive. It's not inclusive like that of verse 7, but it's negative and exclusive. He says, whoever does not love does not know God. And the argument is plain and compelling. For a loveless person, a person who doesn't show love in all that they say and do, for that kind of a person to profess that they're a Christian, to profess to know God and to have been born of God, that's like claiming to be born of parents that we don't in any imaginable way resemble. Saw a brand new baby, a couple weeks old. I saw it this last week one day. And the first thing that the man who was standing with me said is, Oh, that baby looks just like his father. Now, I try not to say those things. I try to say, I, I, I mean, I, I try to be a little bit more diplomatic. I, I try to say stuff like, Oh, I can, I can see both of you in the baby a little bit. Because when that guy said the baby looks just like his dad, you could see the mother who was standing there too going, Does, doesn't he look like me? You know? But, but think. To have a child that in no way resembles either parent? It's not going to be long before the thought comes up in our mind and even the question wonder if the baby's adopted. And, and to be a loveless person? To profess to know God? That person should be loving. Because that's what the Father is like. You see, to not be loving fails to manifest the very nature of Him whom we claim is our Father, born of God, John says, and our friend knows God. Love is a, as much a sign of Christian authenticity as is righteousness. And so John moves to his second argument, verses 9 to 11. And here it's on the historical gift. And he develops it in terms of a statement of duty. We ought to love because God has loved us in Christ. Now if you glance back at chapter 3, verse 16, John proclaims, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The God who is love loved us. And He expressed His love by sending His Son to earth. 
So while the origin of love is in the being of God, the manifestation of love is in the coming of Christ. And so John moves from a a somewhat abstract truth that God is love to a very concrete fact that God showed His love among us by sending His one and only Son into the world for us. Verse 9. And the sending of God's Son was both the revelation of His love. This is how God showed His love. Verse 9. And indeed, the very essence of love. This is love. However, and and I don't know about you, I'm getting to know about some of you more. Uh, That's why it's just unfathomable to me that, do you know that the average ministry in the United States is 18 months? You don't even get to know somebody in 18 months. Now the advantage of that would be that you could have 18 times 4 so, uh, what, four sixes or 30, uh, 72 sermons and just hold them back and keep using them every 18 months. <laughs> but one of the things that we're prone to forget, that we need to remember, that John reminds us of, is that it's not our love that is primary. Not that we loved God, John says, but that God loved us. Now let me say it like this. The coming of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is therefore a concrete, historical revelation of God's love. In that Jesus as God demonstrated by His words and His deeds that love is self-sacrifice. It's the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. And there's never been a greater self-giving than God's gift of His Son. Nor could there be. And here's where you and I come in. The greatness of God's love is manifest in the nature of the gift and its purpose, but it's also seen in its beneficiaries, the recipients, you and me. For God gave His Son to die for undeserving sinners. The historical manifestation, the display on the cross of God's love in Christ not only assures us of His love for us, but it really should lay upon us that we somehow should understand we should have an obligation to love one another. John Stott says it like this, No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. If you take the time and pause and reflect and read, watch a a movie like The Passion, and you see just images of what Christ went through on our behalf, how can you continue to be selfish and focus on me, 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 my, 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 I, 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 I. 
I call it the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. So, God who is love, and has loved, still loves, and today, His love is seen in and through our love when we respond to that ought. And that brings us to John's third argument, which is the form of the hypothesis. That if we love one another, then God abides in us. In other words, God is revealed in our fellowship. God is revealed as He continues to love in and through us. As we sometimes think, they will know we are Christians. How? By the right words we're saying? No. I know you remember the attack as it was called on the Capitol building. Do you know what one of the number one things that I heard from people who are non-church people and who are people who are conservative, not liking what's going on in our country any more than I do? Do you know what the number one thing that I heard said? It was about the person in that group that was carrying a placard placard, talking about Christianity. What are we displaying? What are we showing? Are we showing love for one another? Is God being revealed in and through us by what we're doing? One of the greatest indictments from the world against Christianity is that we are not very loving at times. And therefore, how is our God any different from any of the other gods? And by that, I include the God of materialism and the God of hedonism and and good feelings. I have had people say to me, Preacher, I know what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But I feel more accepted down at the bar with the gang than I do in the church. For years people have said the church is the worst at kicking its people when they're down. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You've heard it. Somebody lives a life that is pretty bad. They come to know Jesus Christ and become a Christian. They confess before men. They submit to baptism. Bury the old self. Rise to walk to a new new life. A couple months down the road, they make a mistake. If it's a baby learning how to walk, what do we do? Reach down. Pick it up. Love it put it back on its feet and put it in the right direction. When it's a person who has lived a life of debauchery and decides to become a Christian and they make a mistake, what do we do? Oh, I really didn't think they meant it anyway. Oh, I didn't think they were sincere. Right? I mean, you've heard it. 
Reciprocal love is based on God's present and continuous activity of love. And John's opening statement about the invisibility of God is indisputable. God is spirit and therefore invisible. We can't see Him in Himself. In fact, the Old Testament theophanies were revelations either of God's glory or of God in disguise. Remember what God said to Moses? He said, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And John will go on, in fact, in verse 20, to confirm that nobody has seen God. The vision of God still lies in the future when Christ appears. It's significant, however, that this is not the only occurrence in the writing of John, where it says no one has ever seen God. In the prologue, He says the same thing in almost identical words. So the question is, is how then can God be known? If we can't see Him, if we can't point to Him, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, it confirms God the only Son, who as is at the Father's side has made Him known. John records unique to his gospel, Jesus answered to Thomas. When Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' answer was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then he went on to say, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But here in verse 12, a statement just, that just might astonish you, quite possibly lead to more confusion. John goes on to say, if we love one another, God lives, God abides in us, and His love is made complete in us. That is... The unseen God who once revealed Himself in His Son now reveals Himself where? In His people. The church. And what do we say regarding the identity of the church? It is the body of Christ. We are the in flesh of Jesus now that Jesus has returned. We are the incarnation of Jesus. We are the body of Christ on earth now that Jesus has returned. The church. The church. And that is how God now reveals Himself to the world. As a few different people have also said, We might be the only sermon our friends and neighbors ever see or hear. We might be the only glimpse that they'll ever receive as to what the true God is like. God's love is to be seen in our love for one another because our love is His love imparted to us by His Spirit, which, as my wife is getting to know and point out, how many times we come to the end of our readings, our all-church readings, for those of you who are doing it, and it almost has one of those little statements that says, oh, I want to read on. I want to read on. And 
That's where we're going next week, verse 13. We'll see next Sunday. It's imparted to us by His Spirit. But John goes further still. Reciprocal Christian love means not only that God lives in us, but also that His love is made complete in us. And it would be hard to exaggerate the greatness, the significance of that thought. In fact, many commentators have been reluctant to accept it and have suggested that the love spoken about is not God's love in the subjective, but the objective, our love for God. Or even a more, more like a definition, God-like love. But the whole paragraph speaks against that. The whole paragraph is concerned with God's love. God's love which originates in Himself and is manifest in His Son. That's the love that is made complete in His people in verse 12. In fact, one of the versions, the New English Bible translated it, translates it by saying, it's brought to perfection within us. Now here's the point. God's love for us is perfected only. I know that's a hard word. But God's love for us is perfected only when it's reproduced in us. Or as it may mean, among us in Christian fellowship. It's these truths about the love of God which John uses as inducements to have brotherly love. We're to love each other. First, because God is love. Second, because God loved us by sending His Son. And thirdly, because if we don't love one another, God will not be seen in the world. All they'll do is hear our platitudes, our propositions, our statements. But they won't accept them because they haven't been confirmed by means of love. 1967, I was uh, 12 years old. And the Beatles were asked to write a song with a positive, encouraging message. And that song was going to be a part of a program called Our World, the very first global television link. In fact, it was broadcast on June the 25th by means of satellite and over 400 million people in 25 countries watched it. So what was Britain's contribution? It was a debut performance of a song that said, All you need is love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. Love is all you need. But the song never defines love. Never. Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, said the nice thing about the song is that it cannot be misinterpreted. It is a clear message that love is everything. And of course, the song was a hit. All you need is love. But what is love? The song said, nothing you, can, nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can make that hasn't been. Nothing you can know. But all you need is love. Let me tell you about another song. It's a song that was written by Matt Redman. Are you familiar with Matt Redman? 
Christian songwriter. Excellent. He and his wife. And they have a, had a single called This Is How We Know. They co-wrote it. Here's what their song says. This is how we know. This is how we know what love is. Just one look at your cross and this is where we see. This is where we see how love works. For you surrendered all. If we really want to love, if we really want to love with authentic love, we have to first know God's love shown to us in Jesus. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, then God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And it's not a mistake. John talks about love being made complete on three other occasions. And each time the meaning is the same as here. We could say His love is truly exemplified in us. We could say His love reaches true perfection in us. We could say His love achieves its goal in us. But if we're not showing God's love, people aren't seeing God. David Jackman, a British pastor and Bible teacher, says this, the church is God's audiovisual presentation to a dying culture. An audiovisual presentation. It's like PowerPoint. PowerPoint is a visual, I'm the audio. An audiovisual presentation. The church is an audiovisual presentation to a dying culture. So here's my question. What does the audiovisual message that you and I are producing right here at First Christian Church, Brook, Indiana, by the choices we make each day, each and every day, what presentation are we showing regarding God's love? Let's pray.